Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University, but please call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Elizabeth Becker about her new book, You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Who were your heroes during your formative years? As a child of the 1970s, many of mine were journalists, especially those reporting on war and revolution in Southeast Asia and Latin America. I'm a little embarrassed to say that as a teenager, I wanted to be Mel Gibson in The Year of Living Dangerously or (laughs) James Woods in El Salvador or even Nick Nolte in Under Fire. It was all so exciting and glamorous to the young Mike Van. But note, all these role models were men. And yeah, as a teenager, I idealized that romantic image of the hard-drinking, rugged, tough-guy journalist. As I got to UC Santa Cruz as an undergrad in the mid-1980s, I had a lot of my ideas challenged, especially on issues of gender. And then when I read When the War Was Over for a seminar on politics of revolution, I added a new hero to my pantheon, Elizabeth Becker. In this book, she recounts the horrors of the American bombing of Cambodia, the barbaric civil war, the unfathomable crimes of the Khmer Rouge. She was there, on the ground, in Cambodia, when so much of the world had turned away. Now she has written a book about her heroes, three female journalists who covered the American war in Vietnam, the Second Indochina War, and the way it spilled into Cambodia. This book is a profile of these three journalists, but it also works as a narrative of the war in Cambodia and in Vietnam. Obviously, this book genders our understanding of the war and the reporters who told the story about this war. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Elizabeth Becker about her new book, You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War, out just this month, February 2021, with Public Affairs. The book profiles Catherine Leroy, a French photojournalist who did some amazing things, Frances Fitzgerald, who'd go on to write the widely acclaimed Fire in the Lake, and Kate Webb, an Australian journalist who covered the war in Vietnam and Cambodia and was held prisoner by the North Vietnamese army for several weeks. These women broke a series of glass ceilings in the embarrassingly macho world of war correspondence. Like the three women she profiles in You Don't Belong Here, Elizabeth Becker began her career as a war correspondent in Southeast Asia. She arrived in Cambodia in early 1973. Writing for the Washington Post, she covered the American bombing and the war between the Lan Nol government and the Khmer, uh, war between the Lan Nol government and the Khmer Rouge. She wrote a major expose of the Khmer Rouge leadership. During the Khmer Rouge regime, she was one of a handful of Westerners, Westerners allowed into the country and even had an audience with Pol Pot. And she was almost killed by assassins during that surreal trip. She has been the senior foreign editor for National Public Radio and a New York Times correspondent covering national security, economics, and foreign policy. 
She has won accolades from the Overseas Press Club. It was part of the Times team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for their coverage of 9-11. She is the author of When the War Was Over, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge Revolution, which has been in print for 35 years and, in my humble opinion, remains one of the best books on the Khmer Rouge. She has also written Bofana, which profiles a Cambodian woman who uh, perished under the Khmer Rouge regime, America's War in Vietnam, a narrative history, and Overbooked, the Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism, an expose of the travel industry. And I have to say that when I when I saw that she had been working on the tourist industry, I I, I smiled for her because all those years covering covering wars and so forth, I, I was delighted that she got to go hang out in hotels and on cruise ships. So Props to you. (laughs) She also serves as an expert witness in the Khmer Rouge genocide trials in Phnom Penh. Elizabeth Becker, welcome to New Books in History. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So before we get into this book and and start talking about the three women you profile, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, um, how you came to be a war correspondent in Cambodia? Uh, I was in graduate school, and um, for various reasons, uh, I left and um, bought a one-way ticket to Phnom Penh. This is January of 1973. I had a friend who I'd met um, when I was studying in India, and she helped me along the way until she was thrown out. And uh, I had to immediately learn how to be a journalist and... um, learn how to report and then write about this country. I had a leg up because my studies was South Asia. And as you know, Mike, with your, um, your academic specialty, um, Cambodia is one of those countries very much influenced by the Indian culture. So it helped, it helped in my learning the language a bit and it helped in understanding what was going on. But also this was the American war. And I grew up with that. I had been studying the American War since as as a concerned citizen as well as as um, an academic. But you you had no formal training as a journalist when you arrived in uh, January '73. None, none. <clears throat> I'd taken one journalism class at university, and I was bored. Um, I'm much more interested <laughs> in studying Asia than you know trying to craft a sentence in a news article. <clears throat> but um, then, you know, uh, you know, there's nothing like having to support yourself in an exotic country in the middle of bombing to force you to learn how to become a journalist. What, why did you pick Cambodia? I mean, you already touched on this with the proximity to India and the, being part of the Indian culture, but why, why Phnom Penh and not Saigon in, uh, in 73? I knew Cambodia. I didn't know Vietnam. I mean, I, mm. I, I'd studied it. And as I said, I had a friend there. And she could put me up for a while, but it was the the inter- the the weight of the war had moved to Cambodia. If you remember, um, after seventy, that was supposed to be the way the United States would get out. By exp- it was you know the one of the many hideous nonsensical um, policies that if you expand the war, you can win it. So it, it was expanded to, to Cambodia. And by the time I arrived, um, it had been, it had helped them. It, it had made the United States convinced that they had to leave, but it, it engulfed Cambodia in the war. It was, it was horrible. 
But I arrived in January 73 when um, just before the Paris Peace Accords were signed and everybody said, too bad, the war's over. Well, not. The war totally shifted to Cambodia. And that's when you had right. the most intense bombing of the war. Right. The, mo- the most intense bombing is in, in is it summer of 73? And that's when it the, starts in the, March you, and ends in August. Right, right. right. And so you, you were in the field visiting, visiting these villages. Um, I, 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 that, that experience is just so unfathomable to me, especially with, without having, I mean, how, how did you prepare yourself for this experience ahead of time or just, is it just jumping into the deep end? But the, yeah, it's um, it's like um, you you work with the others. So you're going to go down Highway Four. You find someone to go down Highway Four. You watch how they do what they do. It doesn't matter if they're a photographer, a journal, a print journalist, a TV person, and you go to all the briefings. You find sources. You just it's the ultimate internship. I I couldn't have better. And I was working with some of the best journalists of the war. So it's, I was so grateful because I am a beginner and I'm working with some very, very smart people. And um, because like most women, um, they didn't think, you know, they were at first they were, you know, pretty kind that I was just, you know, a newbie and um, some were very gracious. Yeah. Well, okay. So the book is about women reporters in war zones. You, I mean, it's, it's, it's very meta in certain ways because in, in my mind, you're sort of the, you know, the, the, er, sort of this new generation of, of female reporter in the war zone. Um, and you, you, you do work your experience into the narrative, but so how did, how did gender impact your experience and, uh, working as a journalist in this war zone? Well, to make it short, because I'll be going over some of those issues when I talk it's, about it, the women. It, it, obviously, it's a huge question, right? <laughs> <laughs> but um, you, uh, you're, you're the, I was the only woman in the press corps, permanent press corps. Um, and um, later, a French photographer joined me. Uh, but so you had way too much sexual attention way too much. And so you had to figure strategies on that. And when you, when I started to do well, um, I was accused of using my fem- feminine wiles, not my brains. Um, and, um, and the, you never knew where it was coming from. I tell the story in, in the book of uh, the new ambassador, John Gunther Dean arriving and having his first press conference. And um, someone asks him a question and he says, Oh, you'll have to repeat it. I was distracted by Miss Becker's legs. And that's sort of symptomatic. It was, you, you had that obvious level, but then you had the other level of, are they taking you seriously? Who can you trust? And um, it really forced you to be on your toes about um, all kinds of things. And um, being called, uh, were was a friend of mine thrown out because she was a woman or, you know, all kinds of questions. And so you never knew where you stood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you certainly, um, the, the better you did, the more, um, the, the target on your back got bigger. Without giving too much of a spoiler. Um, and you, you reveal this in the last few pages of the book, 
what inspired you to write uh, this book about these three women? It, it had been on my mind. There's no question. Um, we're all getting older and um, two are dead. And I was afraid they were sort of disappearing into history. And then um, I don't mind being a spoiler. I was I testified for a week at the Khmer Rouge tribunal, the genocide trial. And um, I was sur- I was um, questioned about whether or not I was actually a good my book was worth anything because um, one of the, the, the only bad review I got was from a professor. Sorry, all you professors out there. And, um, and, um, and the professor said that because I'm a journalist, I didn't really know enough to write the kind of book I wrote. And um, the defense, which didn't have much to go on, really wanted to undermine me because I was a, a, an expert witness. And so finally, I had to say, well, listen, this guy used that, if he did not use that standard on anyone but me, the other journalists who wrote books, he gave them great blurbs. But I'm in this mix, I'm the only woman. And that, as that was coming out of my mouth, I said, people don't realize what it's been like for us. And, and my three heroines, uh, you know, they're almost lost to history. And I didn't want that to happen. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was in, what, 2015 that you were giving testimony and they attacked you? Mm, you're they're, testing they're my memory and I don't want to pull out the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay. They're about, they're about. They're about, yeah. Um, but, but, but decades after the fact, oh, way um, after, the, yeah, the story still had not been told and, and you wanted yeah. to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so how, how did you... How did you pick these three women? And did were you aware of them at the time? Um, I, I know you were you were you were friends with Kate Webb, or you had a connection with her. Um, she met you in the airport in Hong Kong, but on your on your way to Cambodia. Um, how were where were you of uh, Catherine Lewa, the photographer, and Francis Fitzgerald probably on your radar screen because she had right. uh, no. In fact, I had her point. book in my backpack. Um, everybody right. knew Frankie. I mean. It, Frankie Fitzgerald was like immediately a hero because she was young and she wrote this amazing book. I did not know Catherine Lois until I got there. And um, I learned of her because of this French, I told you a French photographer was the other woman in the press corps. And she was a, she, she wanted to be a protege of Catherine Lois. So um, and then once you know her, I began to, to understand who she was. And um, I picked the three because, um, you know, there was just, you know, at most, I would say, of practicing journalists, and this is a guesstimate, about 75, maybe. And there's there are various lists that are all suspect for this out of the other, but I would say about 75. And um, these three came early. They took great risks. They were on their own because news organizations at that time did not consider women fit to be foreign correspondents. So they paid their ticket over and they supported themselves and they fell on their um, faces and then picked themselves up. Um, so that's one criteria. Uh, two, they, um, they succeeded. I mean, it, it succeeded in um, breaking glass ceilings that you don't even know existed. Um, and they did it in a, original way so that they changed how the war was seen. 
And that was critical to me. And they were rewarded. People, they, even though they've been forgotten, um, Katrine, for instance, was the first woman to win the George Polk Award for Photography and the Robert Kappa Gold Medal Award. It's astonishing. Those two together are amazing, and to be the first woman is astonishing. Frankie's book, Francis Fitzgerald's book, is the most honored book to this day about the war. Um, and um, Kate Webb, there's a journalism prize named after her for the best Asian journalist every year. And she, she broke so many records as a combat reporter. Uh, but and her, her story is interesting because more, I think, than any other woman, her byline. So she starts getting real bylines for United Press International, a wire service. She's a woman. She came on her own. She's what we call a local hire. So they didn't have to pay to, you know, um, but she was a local hire. She did, she, she did things that the men didn't want to do. She covered the South Vietnamese army because she realized if they were the key to success, if they didn't win the war, the Americans would have, you know, um, and her, for the first time you had a woman's byline through a wire service, which means the United States the world and Kate Webb, Kate Webb, Kate Webb. And back in the United States where women were, you know, filing lawsuits just to be able to get out of the women's section to start covering national news. Kate Webb's byline was this huge help to say, you say we can't do it. Here's Kate Webb. She could do it. And, um, uh, she single-handedly, um, uh, forced AP to, to have women in the field. She, and it, it, you know, I, you, you can't prove exactly why to Z, but it was no accident that after her, finally, the Times sent some, a woman, et cetera, et cetera. So these, these were, they just head and shoulders. The, the, the thing that um, I didn't originally look at the photographers, which was my mistake, and a nice editor at the New York Times said, hmm, what about Katrine Lois in an p- early piece I wrote? And I w- I'm forever grateful to him because you get blindsided. You get in your little, your little stool. So Katrine's the obvious third. Right, right. And, and she, she's an incredible character. We'll, right. we'll get to her in a second. I mean, <laughs> I was reading some of your – as I was reading your book, I, I'd read passages out loud to, to my wife. I'm like, listen to this. Look. <laughs> um, just, I, 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 was, I was totally captivated by her story. So, um, just, you know, I'm a historian and, um, I'm really interested about the historical specificity of this moment of the American war in Vietnam and from starting, especially in the mid sixties, um, and how it's different in terms of the, the rules, um, and the possibilities for female war correspondents. How, how, how was the American war in Vietnam different than say world war two or Korea? Um, and then different from what's to come with the, the institution of the embedded journalist in um, Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. Well, <clears throat> Vietnam was different for all journalists. We'll start there because um, President Johnson, and we're talking about the American War, which begins with President Johnson when he sends the troops in to take over the fighting. Um, he did not declare it a war. And this was translated on the ground as you don't censor. And that means, and that became a completely different atmosphere for um, journalists. 
that was unique to Vietnam and never repeated. If you had your press card, you could go anywhere with the Americans. You could go on the battlefield. You could get on a helicopter. You could go to a base. You could get an airplane. And um, you did not have to remain with a unit. Your copy was never censored. And you had a free range. Um, Jonathan Shell, um, great journalist, said it's like having a Euro card, Euro train, you know, <laughs> Euro rail, excuse me, Euro rail. Um, it, it was never repeated. So in this much more lax atmosphere, the, the old rule, World War II rule, that forbid women journalists to be in the battlefield covering, they should stay back with the nurses, that was not applied either at the beginning. Now, uh, we won't go into the history totally of women, but that's, that, was, that was the ban. There, you know, I don't know how many women who get around it here, there, and the other, but that was the ban. So it, it, for a year or two, it was nothing done. So women, it's the first time women could follow the American army as much as the men. However, um, when this is at the ground level, when General Westmoreland discovered um, a woman named Denby Fawcett with a Hawaiian unit, he was aghast. Her mother played tennis with his wife. And what in the world was she doing there in South Vietnam, and he very nicely said, Denby, hi, how are you? He realized that she was a reporter. And he said, how long have you been here? And she said, mm, three or four days, I can't remember. And ah, hi. And he went back down to Saigon, and he was furious that women were covering the war, that this, the ban was not being applied. And he tried to impose it again. But through a series of negotiations with, I think, about six women who were there, um, it was not imposed. And essentially that was the, that was a historic moment. It was never imposed again. And, but the women who, who succeeded in this great um, moment, who convinced the Pentagon, no, you do not want to reimpose it. They didn't tell their story for over 30 years. Because in those days, if you draw attention to the fact that you're a woman, it's not going to be, it's not going to turn out great. So right, the, the people right. aren't running around saying, I'm number one, I'm, I know, nobody said that. So um, that was a big moment. So it's, 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 it's this bizarre dance where the female journalists have to, have to push forward and um, get into these opportunities yet, or take advantage of these opportunities and these loosened restrictions, yet not draw too much attention to themselves, or at least their gender identity, because then they could get into trouble. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I remember that story about uh, about Fawcett, um, and that's she's from a, a socially well connected family in in Hawaii, right? I know it. Um, I, I think so. the, the, the name rings a bell from my my childhood, <laughs> but um, the, uh, let's get let's get into um, the the three women that you profile, um, um, and and I'm really curious about the specific genius of each of them that you saw. Um, and let's start with uh, Catherine Leroy. Um, she's a photojournalist from France. How, how, how did she wind up in, uh, in Vietnam? Well, she had no, no, uh, photography experience either. 
she before she um, got to Vietnam, no experience. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Um, well, there weren't women photographers in media in Paris. You know, she grew up in the suburbs. She was a gifted pianist who quit. Um, she was a little bit of a hellraiser. She preferred to go to the clubs in Paris than do homework, so she dropped out of high school. And um, one of the, she fell in love first with um, parachuting, and so she got a parachuting license. And one of her professor, one of her teachers, was a um, somehow had something to do with Vietnam, and so she started looking at Perry Match. And she said, "Oh, that's cool. I think I'll do that." So she gets a crummy job in Paris, raises, uh, saves enough money to buy a one-way ticket to Saigon. She talks a couple of agencies into giving her a letter of accreditation, which you know that's a, this is a joke, haha. This little girl, she's only five feet. She's going to go and take a couple of pictures of Saigon and come back. So she has that. She has a like one like a camera, and she keep she ties it around her neck with a shoelace, and there she is in, in Saigon, and um, she she was at first treated like this um, cute little thing that um, they took out to lunch ha 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 she'll probably end up going back but she was very serious and she walked into the office of the head of the associated press photography a legend named horse foss and he had a um an unusual mind uh, idea back then that he would buy photographs no matter who took him including women and she was the first woman he put his uh, that she he said okay here's some film if you if you take a good photo i'll i'll print it so that's Katrine. And she went out. Her genius was um, she learned everything in the field. So she comes with no preconceptions. She's she's no idea what where you're supposed to stand, what you're supposed to do, da-da-da-da-da. And she learns her English from the Marines. She, <laughs> those, those anecdotes were delightful, like and, um, learning to swear from the Marines. <laughs> yes. And um, this is all going to get her in trouble. And, then, and, and, yeah, um, yeah. and her her – it didn't take her long to realize that what she wants to do was to get close. And the way she describes it is that all of her pictures, she's looking for the eyes. She's going for the eyes. And um, she doesn't do heroics, which in those days were, was the main thing. And her, her combat pictures are filled with anguish and um, moods that you never see in combat. And she's very attentive to the civilians who are part of the scene. Um, she started taking the pictures, and Horst Foss, who himself won a Pulitzer, said, "Some he said I've never seen photographs like this." So her genius was to find the humanity in war, and the other thing is that um, she was willing to spend far more time in the field than almost anybody else. I mean, she, her first year, I think everybody was shocked. They never saw her in Saigon. Now, part of that was because she was so poor. And if she, she was out in the field, she, could eat up, eat with the field. <laughs> she, she eat that crappy food and she didn't have to worry about um, renting any place that was habitable. Um, yeah. And, but other part was that she used her, her size to advantage. She was barely five feet. She had trouble keeping a hundred pounds on her. I mean, she was always losing weight, but she, she was, she got on the ground to take pictures like this. And she, she ran over here. People, they, some of her most famous pictures, the guys that she took the photographs of said, I didn't, I can't believe she was there. It was super dangerous. 
and they never saw her. And she dressed like a, I mean, she looks like a little boy in a Halloween costume in the clothing. She, you know, cause they all wear that. And, um, but, um, she paid a price for that. She had horrible PTSD and the men told her, you know, you don't belong here. This is for the men. And they tried to get rid of her. They, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, um, and she paid the price. Yeah. And, and she did, I mean, break barriers. I mean, she, she jumped with the airborne. She's the only, yeah. And as it turned out, she was the one that was qualified. Now, right. has another woman ever done that? I, you know, I don't know, but she was the, she's not only the only ju- woman, she's the only journalist because that was the first and last. The first and last airborne drop of Kuchi. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, but just, just that idea of, uh, you know, this diminutive, um, French Parisian, <laughs> Parisian, um, with these, with these, uh, airborne guys. I mean, it's just, it's just so striking and, and really like the way you describe it, she really made an effort to prove to them, uh, every time she was with the unit, new unit on the first day, the first night proved to them that she was in it with them, that she was going to walk. She was going to carry her stuff. She was going to march and, and sleep in the rough with them. Correct. Yeah. If she wrote to her father, if I stumbled, I had to pick myself up. Um, if they had seen me need them, it would have been over. And so she and and she was not embarrassed. She figured out how to go, you know, go to the bathroom on her own, which is one of the things the military. I said, oh, you can't be in the field because, you know, the the gender thing about where are you going to go to the bathroom, where are you going to sleep, and she she just sort of got rid of all those issues. Right, right, um, and the same time I was sort of curious of the way that she identifies with the soldiers and um, really identifies with the Marines um, was, did that color her reporting? I mean, she's, she's a photojournalist, so you, she's not writing, putting, um, putting this into words, but um, could you speak to the, the, her sort of identification with the Marines? Um, she said that um, you go through something like that with them. And of course they're like family. Um, but at the same time, her last big photo essay for life, she's, she totally identifies with the Vietnamese people. And she says maybe 20% are in favor of the communists and 20% are in favor of Saigon. And it's the people in the middle who are lost and they're the ones who are suffering the, the burdens they carry. So yeah. she they wouldn't, just, they wouldn't be left alone to tend to yeah. their rice fields. And and, she, um, she's, she just identifies with everybody. And so, yes, she spends all that time with the Marines. So yes, she does. And um, at the same time with all the Vietnamese, as I said, you can, it just comes all the way through. And this is um, this last essay that I met, just mentioned that it was um, in terms of photography, it was considered one of the most, forward-looking, modern kind of um, essay. Mm-hmm. And the next figure that you profile is Frances Fitzgerald. Uh, Frank, you call her Frankie, um, uh, who you know establishes quite a career for herself. And I think of the three, possibly the, the most widely known in the, in the general reading audience or the general sort of knowledge. Um, what, what was her experience? Um, she uh, comes from a very well-heeled background and how, how did she wind up in, uh, in, in Vietnam well, covering the war? She's from 
not only a wealthy family, but a patrician family and um, a very elite upbringing. She's whip smart. Um, she had this, um, but also one of those um, only child loneliness sort of thing and this private school, etc. And um, she wanted to be a journalist. And her first attempt was to go to Newsweek where they said, um, women are only researchers. Women can't be writers. So she, she had enough money that she could try to be a freelancer. And um, she spent a couple of years in Paris trying to write a novel, didn't work. And then she goes to New York and does some freelancing for a New York um, a newspaper, but there was no chance of becoming staff or anything on the sort of things she wanted to do. And so she got the idea of, oh, I'll just go to Southeast Asia and go to Vietnam and um, she which, did, which was going to be one stop on on a major trip. Stops. La- she yeah. Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, just for a few months. Oh, right. But however, that's what she says. However, she makes a lot of plans for her Saigon stop. So I mean, there's a lot going on underneath that. Maybe she, uh-huh. so she gets there, and um, that's it. She's in the middle of the biggest story in the world, and. Um, that she just becomes completely engrossed in it. And um, she wants to write magazine pieces, not the Time magazine, Newsweek magazine, but long-form journalism. And in those days, people did not write long-form journalism in war zones. So in a way, she had the feel to herself. And she decided that the story of the war was in Vietnam not necessarily in Vietnam, the whole countryside, not necessarily just on the battlefield. And she, she specifically, she, yes, yeah, she would, as a print journalist, you don't have to get close like Katrine did, but she would, you know, she would certainly go to the very rear guard. And, but then she would go to the hospital where the civilians are being treated and they're treated like there's nothing there for them. And she just did this whole thing. She said, where is this war in the history of Vietnam? What are the Vietnamese people really like? What's their culture? How are they accepting this war? And what is it? How do they see the two sides? So she, she, she was. She had a very deep sense that this American war had to be seen in the Vietnamese context, and um, so she wrote. She she would go to the PTT, the Press and Telephone and Telegraph office, and. The fancy reporters all had press cable cars and they'd send them. She put her magazine pieces in an envelope, a little stamp, and sent it off. And I don't think she had a single rejection. I mean, and this is no experience before, no experience. I mean, she, honors graduate from Radcliffe in Middle Eastern history, but this was all new to her. And um, she parlayed that. Um, her last two pieces from Vietnam, one was for the Atlantic, where she wrote about the tragedy of Saigon. And this is 66. We'd only, the U.S. had only been there for a year. And she more or less spells out what the problem is that, you know, yeah, they're in, they're in the battlefield, but look what has happened to Saigon. And this, the, the villagers and farmers are being forced from their homes. They're stuck in this horrible um, expanding slum and there's no money to take care of them et cetera, et cetera. And then she goes into the whole politics of it. But so she goes back to the United States and spends several years um, 
doing the research for what became Fire in the Lake, which, yeah. as I said, most honored. Yeah. So she she not only had to deal with um, uh, gender prejudice, but also there's a certain level of suspicions of her of her class identity and her and her connections. Correct. I mean, she's yeah. Each one. She, there's a different so, reason. Yeah, Katrine. They. Yeah. She was. She. Katrine was acting too much like a man. And Frankie right. just, if she does well, it's all oh, because she's got connections. She must have really good connections in the embassy. Her dad was number three in CIA. And, yeah. um, and, but it, it was the opposite. Um, her best uh, buddy in the embassy treated her like a hostess, not like he wanted her to help him with um, a dinner party. He didn't, he didn't treat her like a serious journalist. And, um, and it, it's, it's the other way around because of her upbringing um, with the power brokers, she grew up knowing them. I mean, her mother was the mistress of Adlai Stevenson. She knew how to be skeptical about what's going on. So her privilege did not make her <clears throat> close to the embassy. It made her skeptical of the embassy. It made her skeptical of all this sort of stuff. So when um, her book did so well, uh, shock. It was the same year as um, Halberst- David Halberstam's book, um, best and the brightest. And now Halberstam was like already a giant. He was, um, you know, he deservedly won the Pulitzer for a very early coverage of the Vietnam War under um, President Kennedy. Um, and they couldn't believe that she um, swept the field when, and Halberstam didn't get anything. So right. um, there were, yeah. It, and it's still, I mean, to this day, when I would tell people Frankie's one of the women, they said, oh, but she had it made. She da 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 da. <laughs> if it was so easy, why is she only the rich, the only one who did it? <laughs> I mean, right, no, right. it's, not. it's yeah, not. I just find that so fascinating that like, no matter what, um, sort of the, the boys club finds a way to weaponize some aspect of the female reporter's identity against them. So, you know, uh, uh, is too, too poor and too, too dodgy and, and looks like a ragamuffin in her uniform and can't take her seriously. Whereas um, Francis Fitzgerald is too well-connected, too elite. So we can't take her seriously. There's all, there's always something, uh, something there. One, one of the things that um, uh, struck me was uh, when you talk about uh, Fitzgerald's writing um, is that she looks at Vietnamese women in a non-stereotypical fashion. Um, could you say a few words about that? Well, first of all, none of these women consider themselves women liberationists or feminists or anything. So mm-hmm. it's that era. Um, but um, and there was a horror at being stereotyped as a woman's reporter. Mm-hmm. So the um, what ev- everybody was fleeing was um, the fact that there the odds were that if they were going to be a journalist back in their home country, it would be in the women's section. So. Um, <clears throat> All uh, the the women, not just these th- these three, but I interviewed other women. They said, no, 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 we would never write about women because then we'd be stereotyped. Well, fr- and so what you see in a lot of reporting, well, men especially, but you know whoever, women are um, anonymous sort of prostitutes or farmers or whatever, or they're wives of famous people like Madame New. Or they're, they're the pretty young people that you see in Graham Greene's novel, 
the pretty young Vietnamese women who are the most gorgeous people in the world, et cetera, et cetera. So Frankie instead writes his big piece for Vogue, talk about going against type, about <laughs> really the women of Saigon are some of the best business people in the country. And she has three women who, as she said, oh, they look like these fragile little butterflies. They're not at all. And that um, she makes strong arguments that, that the economy is being run by a lot of these women. So uh, that's the way she saw everything. She just did not want to, she just really had to pull those veils away. And, and if you know anything about Vietnamese culture, I mean, yes, the women hold the purse strings. I mean, this is a, there are many jokes amongst Vietnamese about this, yeah, um, well, they, you know, yeah. they go back centuries, right? Well, yeah, but you know, try to find it in the war reporting. Right, right. Yeah, well, she did try it. and find it in, in the, the writing from the French colonial period. I mean, when I, I don't I don't work on the American war, but when I read about it, there's just so many tropes, especially in regards to Vietnamese women, that are just this white male fantasy that keep coming back. I mean, be it Hanoi in the 1890s, be it Saigon in the 1960s. Um, and <laughs> you also see it in some writing today, but <laughs> I won't name names. Um, um, you, when you talk about the, uh, her piece in the Atlantic that had uh, such a huge impact, um, you comment that, uh, war correspondents are normally lauded for their physical bravery, but, um, you claim that she showed real moral courage and that it was her moral courage that, um, we should be celebrating uh, her for. Could you, could you say a few words on that? Well, because um, it's not. We're still in the era when you could most journalists came critique, willing to critique American um, war strategies, but few question the validity of why we're there. Um, Neil Sheehan, who I, I, I admire a lot. I mean, he's, he says that very well in his, in his, um, his work that he came thinking rah, 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 but he still, they never truly questioned the validity of it until many years later. Um, Frankie, as I said, she was willing to be skeptical about everything. And, um, and that took moral courage because, uh, she, to this day is, always accused of being anti-war from the get-go that a, a demagogue and that's hard to work you know it, it, to this day uh oh she got all those great reviews because it was the anti-war crowd who liked her it, that's a kind of moral courage that you don't always see by the time people were willing to say yes the whole foundation of this war you know the cold war falling dominoes no that it was it was it was that was wrong. And, and then what we did to the, to Vietnam is wrong and so on and so forth. But Frankie did. And, um, and this is a woman who was not in the highest regard because for all the things I've said, and then she writes the book proving this point. So, and I mean, and, um, as you'll see in later in the book, um, to this day, she's very, Highly criticized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very criticized. Although um, this this that was canonical reading along with your book when I was an undergraduate. Yeah, in the, I mean in the nineteen eighties. I mean yeah, that was yeah. on, on quite a few uh, UC Santa Cruz syllabi. Um, tell us about Kate Webb, um, who who was a friend of yours. Yep, um, at the time. Kate 
is Australian. And, and that's what's interesting is my three women came from three continents. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's, uh, that's a nice reflection on um, the um, press corps because Americans, we all know the Americans, but I worked with people from all over the place, you know, mostly European, but lots of Japanese. One of my best buds was Japanese. Um, we had Koreans. Um, and, and a lot of Australian New Zealanders. And so Kate's from Australia, from one of those families that, you know, you know, upper middle class, her grandfather was the Archbishop of New Zealand, but she had a lot of tragedies in her childhood. And, um, and, um, and one of the last was her parents were killed in an automobile accident right after, you know, right when she's in college. So it was tough. And she, graduated always with honors, all these women um, in philosophy and thought she was going to be an artist and had to find a job to pay a debt, a school debt. She got a job as what we would call a copy boy in um, a newsroom, the Sydney Mirror. And while she was passing copy from desk to desk, she of course read it. She's one of those types. She notices where she is and what, and, um, she started reading about the Vietnam War. And Australia is one of the few countries that allied with the United States. Yeah. Often send, send, send troops, Australia, South yeah. Korea. Yeah. Um, that was it, you know, Australia and South Korea. And um, it, no European, the Europeans said this was insane. So, um, so she's interested. And, um, and like that, she said, oh, okay, I'm going to take my typewriter and go to Saigon. And she had, again, one-way ticket, no promise of a job. And she had the hardest of, of the three. She had the hardest time getting on her feet. She was told to her face um, by the United Press International Bureau Chief, why would I hire a woman? She couldn't get assignments. She was nearly lost her um, tourist visa because she couldn't get an accreditation until a, an American woman editor gave her accreditation. She was able to get going. And um, she really had to prove her stuff she did it in during the Tet Offensive of 68 when she was one of the first, she was a freelancer, but she was one of the first to, um, to arrive at the scene of the U.S. Embassy when the communists had, um, you know, launched the Tet all over the country. But, you know, the, the biggest shock was that they were able to get into the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And she, if you could just remind me, um, the, the morning of the Tet Offensive, she wakes up and doesn't know that it's happening, right? No, nobody does. Um, yeah, it's, because it's, it's, you wake it's up so early. Fireworks. Yeah. yeah. You wake she's, up. She's, she's getting a helicopter ride up north or something. She was going to go to the airport and get on a plane to play coup. Yeah. 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 And as That's she's true. waiting to, to hail a taxi at four in the morning or something, um, military chiefs go by real fast, real fast, real fast, and in the direction of the embassy. So she gets herself over there and is one of the first to see, once once the communists have been killed, she's the first to see the destruction. And this is a brand new embassy, you know, the big center of Saigon. And she writes, it looked like a butcher shop in Eden. And that phrase, well, first of all, her reporting helped get her real work with UPI. But that phrase you can find in all kinds of history books. It's it's one of those phrases that you know, rarely do they credit her, but it, it's her phrase, and that's that's the way people saw it. And of course, we all know the importance of Tet in our history of Vietnam War. Anyway, so, so she, she goes on by, by chance. She was able to be there, and this 
this this then sets her up her career. Mm-hmm. And um, she continues. It's it's quotes by chance, but it's not by chance because she's the one who gets up early. She's the one who notices what's going on. So it's chance, but it's not chance. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and she does this consistently. She she's now um, a local hire, which is really the bottom of the rung. And um, that's usually um, local hires are usually, um, you know, the people of the country, like a local hire is usually Vietnamese, but they put her in that slot and um, she raises above it. And um, she volunteers to do the stuff, the dangerous stuff nobody else wants to do, like night going out on night patrol with the South Vietnamese. Um, And um, she just writes story after story. Um, Then she has a horrible experience with an American um, Green Beret. And we'll just skip over. And um, we're now in um, May 1970 when the United States um, invades Cambodia and the war shifts to that battlefield. And she's so well thought of that she's named the number two in the new Cambodia Bureau in Phnom Penh. Uh, Another uh, American man is flown in from the Middle West and she's his number two. And <clears throat> that phase was the most dangerous for journalists of the whole war. In four months, as many journalists were killed in Cambodia as had been killed in Vietnam the previous six years. And um, one of them. What, what? Why, why was it so much more dangerous? Okay. You, you talk about this in the book, but um, I thought that was very interesting. Well, in Vietnam, as we were just saying, you were with the Americans when you're covering the battle and you had American hospitals all in, you had American um, helicopters, you had, uh, you were, you had all the American facilities and even the South Vietnamese, they, it was, the war had been going on for so long. They had it all to, if you were injured, you knew, you knew you would be taken care of. Cambodia was a neutral country until 1970. No infrastructure, no Americans, because, uh, the uproar in the United States when, um, President Nixon announced the invasion was incredible. Uh, it's mostly remembered by Kent State, but so from this very um, established battlefield experience in South Vietnam, you go to Cambodia where there's essentially no army. The Americans were forced to return. They can only um, help. The Congress says no, you can't spread the war, so they could only help with you know lots of money and, and military aid, but essentially uh, bombing. And so journalists rented cars that had until weeks earlier had been used for tourists. They hired who any Cambodian who could speak their language, English, French, whatever. And, um, and they had to rely on Cambodian intelligence because the Americans did not have the infrastructure. And, it was it was a slaughterhouse. You go down a highway and you ran into an ambush, and that and this is in um, a Merce- an old Mercedes limo, not in an APC. So it was it took a while to figure out how to cover that war. Right, right. Um, so what what how, how t- tell us the story of how she wound up uh, being taken prisoner. By the the North Vietnamese Army. I mean, that's just, uh, I mean, just absolutely fascinating. So her boss was killed, 
And um, UPI said, okay, Kate has to be the bureau chief. Again, this was, this was astonishing that a woman would be the bureau chief for UPI in a battle zone. Now, I know women in different places did some things, but nobody, I could not find another one who did anything like this. But again, you don't, you don't draw attention to it. You right. know, oh, ooh, I think maybe Kate's the first one in a, you know, no, but she was a, she was the bureau chief and that's a very big deal. UPI, it, there are very few news organizations had permanent offices there. So she was a, she was very important, but, um, she was also in charge of all the reporting and the photographers. And these would be Cambodians who assisted her. Um, and um, she was adamant that she would take the same risk as they would, which is Kate's MO. And um, one year after she became bureau chief, she was captured on Highway 4 with five others, um, journalists, four Cambodians and a Japanese journalist. And they were held for 28 days while, by the North Vietnamese. And the reason the North Vietnamese were there was because once the Americans invaded, um, it was to cut off supplies to North Vietnam. Anyway, strategically, the North Vietnamese... It's, it's the end of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. So strategically, campaign, yeah. the North Vietnamese said, no, you're not going to do that to us. And they came in and they took over essentially half of the country to protect their strategy, the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So Kate was arrested. Uh, I mean, she wasn't arrested. She was captured and held for 28 days. And while she was held. Um, it was 28 days, 28 days. Yeah. Wow. And um, while she was held, uh, she was declared dead. The New York Times ran her obit, which tells you how important she was by then. Her obit was in the New York Times. And um, then she came out alive and boy that's when she's the legend she's the legend i mean everywhere everybody knew kate webb and she looked at she's gorgeous um and um she writes a book and um then comes back and ptsd gets her it was very hard and she'd sort of disappear and you know ptsd for for um soldiers wasn't wasn't in vogue. I mean, people, you know, shell shock. I mean, they, it was the olden days when PTSD was not um, considered going on. And um, so it, it, for soldiers, much less for journalists, much less for a woman journalist. So um, Kate got the reputation as a drunk. She drank too much. I mean, every, oh, Kate, lovely girl, lovely girl. She drinks too much. I mean, um, did she drink more than the men? I have no idea. But, you know, a woman... You know, Kate. But it because the woman, it stands out more, right? right. right? So, yeah. oh, I feel so sorry for Kate. Da 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 da. Um, and but uh, so she's she's in Hong Kong, and um, and what's interesting is that 1975 is clearly going to be the end of the war. Frankie Fitzgerald in New York gets a rare visa to Hanoi, so she's in Hanoi just as the troops are going down. Kate talks her bosses in Hong Kong and letting her go to see the evacuation in South Vietnam. And she gets up to USS Blue Ridge, which was the ship where the American embassy and everybody came. 
she became the lead pool reporter. Catherine Lois in the Middle East drops everything and flies down to Saigon so she could see the end. And I think that shows you the dedication of these three women. Amazing. I, you know, I don't like to say they were the only ones or so on and so forth, but it's, to me, it's singular, um, the dedication they had to this story and um, the, the amazing work they did. And again, Kate's... But but even more than that, the the way in which this war had become a part of them. Oh yeah, mm. um, I mean it's not just a story, but like that that they have that they have to be there at the end, yep. especially uh, Catherine the Wall, and 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 she's she's there when the uh, the famous North Vietnamese tank yep. uh, pushes through the yep. the gates at the presidential palace, right? Yeah, right. You and you can see that? her in the the journalists, all the journalists that, who are still there, and and uh, most of the Americans did not stay. But you can see her with the, all the press, and they're all big. And then there's little Katrine. But um, yeah, and um, and Kate, uh, for all of her success during the war, afterwards, she got the nice assignment in Singapore, but quit not too long afterwards because her boss said he she should have to be his mistress, and she did not take this. Well, and without saying why, she complained to New York that this guy was she couldn't work with him, and um, New York took the guy's side, you know, because you don't you don't bring up sex, sexual harassment, nah, you don't bring that up, you could that's a that's a no no non-starter, and so Kate quit, and she didn't do any journalism for ten years, and then she went back with the French news service Agence France Presse, and and. Had quite the career after. Had a after lovely that. career, great career, yeah. and um, and her her um, her real identity with the local reporters she worked with was obvious. She fought for them to have better um, salaries, that they should be given cut lines and and bylines, um, which was really hard. Um, it was so singular that um, there the Kate Webb Award is for Asian journalists who show that same kind of courage and determination that Kate did. That's fantastic. Um, so you, several times you've mentioned trauma and post-traumatic stress. And could, could you, could you say a few words about how um, they may have experienced post-traumatic stress or trauma differently than, um, than others due to various gender norms and so forth. And, and maybe, I mean, I was thinking about it, maybe the, the, they're particularly isolated and lonely um, because of gender boundaries uh, amongst their fellow journalists and so forth. Did, did that have an impact, uh, accentuate um, the, the the trauma? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can make that diagnosis, but they were certainly very lonely. And, um, and without saying, like, Katrine had a horrible time going back to Paris, and she got, she was back and she, she just couldn't understand why she couldn't, couldn't, she couldn't adapt at all. And then she got an assignment to cover Woodstock and that sort of helped because she could, she just said, okay, I'm just going to be with the, with the guys. And her, cause she had found some vets. And so she, um, she hung out with the vets and, and, um, but did she ever recover? People would say no. Did Kate ever recover? People would say no. 
And, you know, Frankie was not in that um, and anywhere near that kind of at all. And she would say, no, I had none of it. But um, but it's. And I quote several other women who say, you know, it's it's the shock. Now, um, Katrine was wounded badly. That's also part of it. Um, the illnesses you get and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, as women, I think maybe you're right, but I, 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 the one thing I try really hard in this book is just, and I go to great lengths to show their whole life, their romantic life, their, their, you know, the letters they write to their family, all that sort of stuff, so that I don't have to make a diagnosis, so that you, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pretend I know, but you will, you get into their heads, you read what they're thinking, and then you can make up your mind because. That that's a that's a that's a that's a um, argument I don't want to get into. Did they do it because they are women? No. Is it because of, no? You you know their whole life, and you see how they f- feel it. You see the trouble that it comes about from a woman succeeding in war, both professionally and emotionally, and in, in their personal life. So there you are. Yeah, yeah. No, and you, the way in which you capture their humanity is just is. Very, very thoughtful, graceful prose. I mean, I, I just love those sections. And I, I wanted to ask you about um, including their romantic lives um, and what, why you thought that was important. And maybe how, how would you or one write about that differently than a male journalist? Well, um, it's important because uh, I'll do the second one. Uh you you can't understand um, what they were facing without knowing their personal life. I and as a woman, I know that your romantic life is a barometer of all the other stuff. And um, now maybe I would uh, and um, how you're treated romantically. It's you know, there's no question. I mean. No question. And if I did not have that in, you would not understand what it meant to be a woman covering that war, period. And I, you know, I didn't go through the hoops to explain why that's true, but I know that's true. And, um, and I read, of course, a lot of the memoirs of the men and they don't even, not even close, not even close. Um, uh, women are the romantic, they, they will, some will have romantic interests, no question. Um, but you never hear that other side of the woman. And, you you know, it's like, but you know, I was not doing this to, to make any, she's a woman versus he's a man. I did this because I don't think you could understand what it's like to be a woman in that war without telling the whole story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, could you say a little bit about their afterlives um, after, after the war after, or after their war? Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Catherine Lavoie going to to Woodstock and then um, falling in with the the anti war veterans and uh, and um, helped or was one one of the the cinematographers for a, a film that um, a, a prominent anti war film. Yep, um, Ron Kovitch is. It was when he first became known, and then after that, he wrote his autobiography, and that which which the, the Oliver Stone Tom yep. Cruise vehicle, yep. right? Yeah. Um, and then um, she she did very well in the Middle East, and then things didn't go well, and um, she died quite young. Her uh, 
her last assignment was to for Perry Match to go back and um, take a photograph of one of the um, young medics who she photographed in the middle of battle. And she found him, and he was a total 100% mess. I mean, he'd never recovered from the war. His body was covered with tattoos of the names of every single veteran. He was estranged from his children, and he died not long after. And sadly, so did Katrine. She lived in Los Angeles, and um, her career just, she was, she was not a good manager. Um, I think she suffered from all of the too many struggles. She couldn't tell a friend from enemy, bad temper. I mean, I show in the book, I don't pretend not to. I mean, I, she, I couldn't help, but you had to put all that in. So it's all in well, there. The, but when she receives the award and then, uh, and she jumps off, berates but, everyone. <laughs> but, but I have yes. to say for all of the, and everybody, um, she got a reputation for being promiscuous. Please men don't call her promiscuous. I saw what you guys were doing, but, um, but what's so for all this stuff that she was troubled, she da da da. She after she died, she was so beloved by her her peers that they put together a foundation called Dotation French for Foundation Dotation Catherine Lacroix, where they put brought for the first time they found all of her photographs of her. There's some in Paris, some here, some there with her mother, some in L.A., and all of her papers to create this foundation so she didn't be forgotten. So when I said, can I please, I want to write this book. Katrina is one of the three. They said, okay, thank you. They had, it was all, I mean, they, it was they amazing. Yeah. Can you imagine any of us having friends like that? I don't think my friends would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's such a testament to her alone. Yeah. And Frankie yeah. had a very successful career. I don't think she ever, um, she was sort of a public intellectual. She was the head of um, Penn, um, one of the historical societies. She not she's the only of the three who married, but she was fifty years old by the time she married. None of them had children. Um, and um, as I said, uh, she the critique of her book was almost um, really savage and. Um, when um see I, I was so oblivious to that i mean I, maybe it was my uc santa cruz education but everyone's celebrating well, it went out of you book. it went out, well because it's it's one of those books because everything that's been found out since of course you can critique it because right. now all yeah. the archives are open all that sort of stuff yeah. but yeah but this in, in, in the 70s the critique was savage no, this the critique was as it gets older. No, the critique gets worse and okay. worse over the years. Okay. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. It's the critique gets worse and worse over the years because you find out what you know, you archives, interviews, all this sort of stuff. So fine, but the book for its time was amazing, and so um, I didn't realize just how much the pushback was until Ken Burns's Vietnam series which was 2017. And um, I look on the, um, the website for recommended books, histories of Vietnam, 58 books and Frankie's wasn't there. And then you look up all the critiques yeah. and it was like, Oh, she, and I interviewed a lot of guys and, Oh, she relied too much on Paul Muse and Oh, she doesn't really know the Vietnam character. And so I went to the, everybody's favorite um, war um, historian, 
Frederick Logoval, who's at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I knew he liked the book and he, he said it's seminal and you have to judge it for its time. It's, it's one of the important books. And, um, and he's, he's, thinks he sees some envy, some jealousy, and maybe a little misogyny. And he said that on the record. So um, doesn't let go. And so that, yeah. that's it. Yeah. And then um, and then I told you about Kate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you've been really generous with your time. And uh, we need we need to wrap up. But I, I I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> um, but um, as a whole, what what do these three women mean to you, uh, both professionally and personally? Well, um, it, it's you know like any life, you don't know what they mean until it gets you get older and older, right? And um, they're just like the touchstones. And as I realized that people would. You were in the Vietnam War. I didn't think any women were in the Vietnam War. I mean, honestly, um, did you get any close to the action? I don't think you did. Did you? And um, I said, hey, and um, women photographers had never heard of Catherine Lois. Frankie, she wrote that book, but that didn't mean she was in the war, does it? And um, Kate Webb, yeah, she. Uh, no, I don't know her. I mean, even Australia, they um, a few years ago they put out a, a stamp with Kate on it um, for their Veterans Day, but the average public, uh-uh. I mean, the book is out in Australia and the editor who, who bought it, the publisher said, I had no idea we had Australia had, an, had anybody like Kate. So a lot hmm. of this is, it's definitely um, homage, but I think it's also, um, I don't want them forgotten. Um, they meant a lot to all of us. And um, it's also a sense that the more you know your history, uh, uh, it's coming back and forth and back and forth. But they were there too. They were there too. And um, if you read the books about uh, by the men about the war, they're not there. They're just not there. And I realized, well, they're not there because women haven't written one. There are a couple of attempts, and, I'm, and I acknowledge the attempts, but I said, okay, I'm going to make my attempt, and this is my attempt. Yeah, yeah. And, and the and the your book works so well, not just as a profile of these women, but as a narrative of the war. Um, I think, uh, you know, someone who knew, knows nothing about the war would, through their lives and through their, their careers, follow the trajectory of the war. And I think it's just really, really just a, a it, was, it was a delightful read. Um, yeah. Um, finally, before I let you go, I've got uh, two final questions. Um, uh, can you recommend two books or more? For, for the audience of your picking? Okay. Um, because this is 2021, February, I would first recommend The Great Influenza by John Barry, <laughs> speaking of history. Um, that well, has been as very, someone who writes about disease, uh, yes, I approve. <laughs> yes. Um, I, it's been, it was such a help to me to read the history of the influenza. But back to, to the war, um, the Frederick Logoval, who I just mentioned, his book, um, Embers of War, about the French War, is um, it's a keystone and is beautifully written. So I would recommend that for the historian in you. And then I want to recommend two novels, and that's the two I think you want. Um, and they're both uh, by uh, Asian Americans. One is uh, The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, 
and um, he's California. Um, Pulitzer Prize for his first effort and is now a rock star in, in, in literature. And, and Pulitzer Prize, MacArthur, MacArthur I mean, just name and it. The nonfiction book that came out at the same time was shortlisted for a National Book Award. I mean, unbelievable. So yeah. I pretty much love, hate him. <laughs> but uh, also, uh, listeners, I, I interviewed him about his nonfiction book, um, Nothing Never Dies, about memory and, and war in Vietnam. Um, so that's in the, in the backlog of new books podcasts. So, and, and any, any day now, the sequel to the sympathizer is coming out the committed. So I'm hoping to get him back. And, um, and then I'm going to recommend a, a Canadian woman, Madeline Tien, T H I E N, um, Sino Malaysian Canadian and her book, uh, do not say we have nothing was shortlisted for the book. Booker Prize, but her book on Cam- her novel about Cambodia that was do not say we have nothing is about um, uh, the Cultural Revolution, but that's to show her bona fides. But her earlier book, Dogs at the Perimeter, Dogs at the Perimeter by Madeline Tian, I think is one of the best um, novels about um, Cambodia in the Khmer Rouge period, Excellent. and you've never okay. heard of it. <laughs> No, I haven't. Dog, is it is it easy to find? I should think so. Um, once she got, she was shortlisted for the um, Booker, and in fact, a lot of people thought she would get it. Um, her 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 catalog went up, but she's she's in Vancouver, just up the road from you. Did, that's, <laughs> Madeline that's, and that's T-H-I-E. A, that's a long road from Santa Cruz to Vancouver, but <laughs> and um, um, and. Uh, there are lots of Cambodian authors who wrote memoirs, and I didn't want to pick one of those. But yeah. I, I yeah. wanted. But Madeline um, did a great job. So, I, we, yeah. our Asian American yeah. friends, I think, need to. Look, we cannot support them more. For, absolutely, for absolutely. So, um, finally, what are you working on now? What, um, what can we hope to see from you next? Oh, I do not. It, I don't do it so quickly. I mean, I've done. <laughs> During this whole pandemic, I've, I've continued writing about um, tourism because this is the flip side. There's no tourism. Right, yeah. And so um, we've learned two things about tourism. One, we're more economically dependent on it than we thought. All those jobs are gone. And I, two, I, I, live, I live in Santa Cruz and I'm from Hawaii yeah. and I've got friends in Cambodia. So yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, but on two, we also see the damage it does yeah. because we had the blue skies. We had uh, without the tourists, we had all kinds of wonderful things. And in Europe, people were so happy. They had their cities back. They could go to Louvre and they had it to themselves, you know, all this sort of stuff. So we saw the price and And we're now. The the surf was uncrowded in Santa Cruz during the, uh, during the lockdown. So I was happy. There you go. (laughs) There you go. And then, um, and I think that helped. That's helped rethink i don't know how it's going to work but it's rethink and um key west is one of my keys in this because they voted in the november election to forbid all big cruise ships from coming and to only allow environmentally conscious small cruise ships to come and um it's very much a dynamic situation now so Okay. Well, I look forward to reading more of your work. Okay. Thank you so, very much for having me. Yeah. Elizabeth Becker, thank you so much for talking with us. This, was, this was great. This was a real delight. 
Thoughts. This has been a conversation with Elizabeth Becker about You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War, out with public affairs in 2021. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.